Beyond the Fence Line, a podcast brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Created by landowners for landowners, we're proud to play a role in conserving the Texas legacy of wide open spaces. Hi, I'm Sandra Velarde, and I lead our fundraising efforts here at TALT. Gifts that are given to TALT stay right here in Texas, protecting open space that will be here for generations to come. Giving to TALT means investing in communities, clean water, and clean air that benefit us all. Please consider a small recurring donation today and be part of that movement that is keeping Texas big, wide, and open. Visit our website to learn more at www.txaglandtrust.org support. Well, welcome to Beyond the Fence Line, episode 15. We're really going to, on this episode, we're going to explore strategies for revenue generations on our working lands. I got two dear friends of mine and, and uh, true thought leaders in the industry, uh, Mr. Terry Anderson with Conservation, Conservation Equity Partners, and then also Greg Simons with Wildlife Systems. Greg, Terry, appreciate you guys joining us. Yeah, Thank you. Happy, to, happy to participate. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, you know, I think let's really kind of open this up with a brief overview of each of your companies. Um, Greg, you kind of give us a little bit of, uh, tell us a little bit about Wildlife Systems. Sure, you bet. Um, appreciate the opportunity to do so. It, Wildlife Systems is a company I started in 1987, shortly after I graduated uh, with a wildlife and fishery sciences degree from from Texas A&M, um, had an opportunity to work on some internships in the um, in the hunting business when I was in college, including with an individual who was just getting started with a commercial hunting business. So it gave me a chance to kind of see what it was like firsthand to try to try to uh, fledge a business and um, put me in a position to where I was able to to sketch out a business plan my senior year and, and uh, put together some, some, um, some, some funding dollars from a couple of different individuals to get things started. And, uh, and basically our focus today is very similar to what it's been, you know, since the early years. And that's uh, uh, principally uh, developing commercial hunting programs on different private lands, uh, uh, principally here in Texas. But over the years, we've done some work and several other states, several foreign countries. Uh, we also provide some, uh, some technical uh, guidance, technical assistance to different landowners, bank trust groups and others on different types of uh, wildlife management needs. And, and uh, you know, over the years, the, the, the primary thing that's changed is just our footprint, uh, how things have grown and the, the number of programs that we're involved with. But, uh, but for the most part, the, uh, the general concept of the, uh, the business still remains very similar to what it did uh, in the early years. Hey, Greg, on that, you know, maybe a little bit more on that is, is your clientele the same or has it changed over the years? You know, there's been some, um, you know, some, some flow um, early on uh, just due to lack of, um, of being able to develop our markets around the country. We were heavily dependent on our Texas market because it was the most 
convenient one for us to access, you know, being based out of Texas. And then from really about uh, 1999 until about mm, 2005, roughly, uh, Pennsylvania was our biggest state. Uh, there was a period of several years where not only was it our biggest state for clients, it was it was our biggest state by, by a pretty large margin. There really wasn't a close second. And, uh, but uh, the, the Southeast, uh, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, you know, the Carolinas, uh, all those areas over the years have been uh, strong areas for us. Uh, back when, you know, when uh, the real estate markets um, kind of cratered around 2004, 2005, 2006 in some areas, including Florida, you know, things, Things changed somewhat in 2009. It, it seemed like we did not have a distinct strong market area. The whole country was kind of struggling. And then since 2010 forward, you know, the Eagleford kicked in in 2010. And our Texas markets uh, really, uh, really grew uh, considerably over a period of several years. But uh, today it's pretty diverse. We've got... Um, very good balance uh, between uh, non-resident hunters uh, as well as Texans that are hunting with us. Great, thanks. It's just interesting to me the the dynamics of how you know the, the clientele as well as kind of what are what the landscape of our, our landowners look like now. You know, it's kind of changed over the years as well, and how they you know kind of mirror each other a little bit as well. You know, Terry, I know uh, you know you're you're good friends with Greg and a partner with Greg, um, you know, bless, bless Greg's heart, you know, having to put up with you. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your kind of latest venture on conservation equity partners? Yeah, happy to, and thank you, Chad. It's uh, in some ways it, it is on the opposite end of the spectrum from uh, from wildlife systems, and uh, I guess one I've known Greg for many, many, many years since uh, going back about to the time of our college days. But uh, after that, our paths took very different directions, and uh, I moved into the private consulting sector, and I started out at a uh, much larger college than Greg, who went to A and M. I started off behind the pine curtain at Stephen F. Austin, so. Greg's been trying to catch up for years and getting really close. So, uh, at any rate, uh, I, I spent 27, 28 years in the private consulting space, largely working on mitigation projects, environmental offsets, and um, just some environmental consulting. But uh, I kind of took an early retirement in 2017, did a few other things that I was kind of passionate about. And then started Conservation Equity Partners with Greg, and uh, we just kind of merged our worlds together. Conservation Equity Partners is really an enterprise that where we're trying to take advantage of and some of the current changes going on. And uh, I think a good way to describe it is that we're trying to use Conservation Equity Partners Oh, is an enterprise that merges a lot of those traditional natural resource management practices with real estate investment, 
with uh, ecosystem services and the evolution of that industry and put it all together in one kind of a, a unique uh, a unique package. So we do some consulting in conservation equity partners, but, but not a lot. Uh, we spend more time looking at uh, looking for private landowners that have interesting projects they're trying to accomplish. Uh, some lands that we can acquire to develop some of these projects on. So in, in some cases, we're, we're buying land to develop our own projects. In others, we're uh, truly partnering, hence the name, with, with private landowners that have no desire to sell their land, but either may lack the capital or the technical expertise to move forward. And uh, we try to put it together in a logical fashion that makes uh, makes financial sense and create some positive ecological outcome along the way. Uh, that's great. I mean, I, to me, it's amazing and how you've merged, you know, uh, you and Greg's uh, businesses together and, and it's important, right? And I think one of the, the key parts that, that really um, stands out to me is that, that both of you understand and it's kind of talks philosophy as well is that we're in the relationship business. And, and both of you take that principle to another level and, and people uh, mean so much to both of you. And, and then it's about the relationships of the people and it's about the relationships of the people to the land. Um, and I think another component is that, you know, both of your ventures are really hinged around this idea of adding value to those working lands operations, right? It's, it's about finding these different revenue streams. And it's easy to think about the product, you know, that comes from the working lands, but we often lose the other values found on these operations. So I'd like for us to talk a little bit about that. And, you know, maybe Terry kind of maybe hear from your thoughts of, you know, those other values. Um, what, you know, it's what I call beyond the fence line, right? Those, those ecosystem services that, you know, not only help the the, the land and the landowner, but but flow across that fence line back down to the consumers. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And again, we are at a, uh, when it comes to ecosystem services and those components, I mean, we're, I think we're truly at a generational moment right now where some things are happening that, that certainly haven't happened in uh, in a long, long time. Uh, there are a lot of elements coming together to to create opportunity, I believe, and you know, a few of them have been of the ecosystem services have been fairly well quantified and structured for a while. The uh, mitigation banking in terms of offsetting impacts to streams or wetlands, some of the uh, species habitat projects. Or offsetting impacts to threatened endangered species. Those those markets are they, they seem new to a lot of people, but really they've, they've been around and evolving since the late 70s into the 80s, and they started to get structure in the 90s. And uh, unfortunately, the, those are largely niche-oriented opportunities, and it's not one size fits all. And uh, a lot of things have to come together to make a mitigation bank for wetlands or bank for species, both from the the right form of habitat, 
in the right market with the right type of impact. So it's that, that's certainly not a broad-based market that just any landowner can jump into. It's very niche-oriented. Yeah. But now we're on the, the cusp of a lot of these new markets in you know, carbon, carbon sequestration is back. And I don't know if this is, depending on how you count it, this is the fifth, sixth, or the seventh time it's <laughs> kind of risen up in America since the late 90s. But um, I think it's got a little stay in power this time. And with a lot of other things that are happening around the world, I, I think we're going to see some carbon markets expand and grow in a way that the average producer in the rangeland world or, or in the timber world can uh, can generate some dollars. Uh, some of the water markets around the country are starting to get more structure to those. People have talked about water around uh, San Antonio for a long time, the Edwards Aquifer, but suddenly water is taking on some uh, new meaning in Texas. And then Again, that's old hat to some people out west, California. There's been a lot of energy around water for years. But you know, there's just an array of these uh, markets that have bubbled up. And it, they start as a series of deals. They're really not a market. They're just a series of deals. And then it becomes kind of an early stage market where it's starting to get some structure to it. And then as it grows from there, they start to get more structure. Uh, they start to stabilize and get a little more repeatable. So we're, you know, we're across the realm of ecosystem services, particularly in Texas and these around surrounding states. We're at that point where we've got some pretty mature ecological markets. But then, and the, what's really exciting is again a lot of these new deals that are going to grow and evolve over the next year or so. Yeah, thanks, Terry. I mean, I think too. It's, it's beyond the carbon, right? I mean, you've heard me say this, that I think it's, um, you know, the carbon is just one little piece, right? It's about stacking all these other, I think, potential markets of biodiversity and water and et cetera. Um, and I think we are headed in the right way. You know, Greg, you know, I'd like to hear from kind of your thoughts and, and really kind of maybe building upon what Terry talked about. I'm really interested in what, has changed over the years um, in the terms of how landowners are really looking at enhancing these values that they're holding. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, when we start talking about, you know, some of these values, especially when we, when we kind of played them up in the context of, you know, ecosystem service markets, I, I think that there's, uh, in itself, a little bit of confusion, sometimes a bit of a misnomer of, of how we use, you know, ecosystem services and what that really means. But what we're, when you distill it down, what we're talking about is, is really the public benefits of these natural resources that are found on these lands, or in this case, on these private lands. And and those values, they're really quite diverse. They're more diverse um, once you get to, to really analyzing them than what uh, I think most people think, because once we uh, put them under the microscope, we start seeing things such as, you know, these recreational markets, recreational values, 
financial values, emotional values, spiritual values, ecological values that translate into clean water and clean air, uh, biological values that may allow us to identify the, you know, the next uh, cure for some disease through some of these plant compounds. Uh, values related to food. It may be food that's a consequence of producing uh, uh, forage for livestock, or it may be food that uh, is directly associated with the, you know, the wild animals that are harvested on those those properties. So I think that to really um, have a have a good thorough discussion of 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 how these you know how these values have changed, we, we've got to. Um, we've got to identify what those, those brat, that broad suite of values even looks like. You know, in my case, we, we, we deal more with, uh, you know, the recreational side of things. So, uh, so over time, you know, seeing, uh, landowners place more emphasis on, uh, outdoor recreation as part of their, uh, ownership driver. And if it's, uh, it's pretty predictable, if it's a multi-generation landowner that's been in their family for a long time. Uh, generally, uh, the recreation that we're talking about is tied to, to financial, you know, revenue generation, uh, them trying to figure out how to, how to build that recreational component, component into their, you know, business portfolio for that property uh, to make it profitable. If it's a, a new landowner, which there's more and more new landowners every day, it, uh, it's not necessarily as, as financial driven. So when we start talking about uh, the recreational aspect of what uh, motivates those landowners, it's for their own recreational benefit at times. And, uh, and depending on you know, what, what that principal driver is uh, often dictates you know, what those recommendations look like when we start initially working with a landowner trying to sketch out something that that, uh, that makes sense, but, uh, but, uh, but again, uh, fundamentally just recognizing that there are a very broad suite of uh, public benefits of these different natural resources that are found on these, these private lands. Yeah, I think the point is very, I mean, you articulated it very well, Greg, and, and, and I think these are some of the reasons why when we try to talk about the value of these you know, the suite of ecosystem services, as you mentioned, it becomes very hard and difficult. You know, Dr. Roel Lopez and I have been working on trying to um, put a value on these ecosystem services in Texas and trying to, to you know, there's been some of these others and, and people have heard me talk about this on other podcasts, recordings. The California put a report out uh, right about a year ago um, that they did with uh, California Rangeland Trust in uh, Berkeley and uh, around 300,000 acres of uh, uh, conservation easements. They, they put a value or were able to put a dollar figure value on the ecosystem services that those 300,000 acres were providing to the state of California. And it was $1.44 billion annually, um, which is a tremendous amount of value. And as you mentioned, there's some of those values. It's just, you can't put a dollar figure, right? A, a spiritual and mental health component is, you know, it's just hard to put, put something on that. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's interesting, you know, how we go and how Terry's talked about, you know, I think the, the stars are aligning 
And, you know, how does this look like in a marketplace and how do we start putting these values together? Um, you know, Terry kind of shift from that. What are some of the new um, and innovative strategies that are, you know, really becoming available, you know, for landowners to really enhance these values on the working lands? You know, it is, uh, that's a question that I get asked uh, almost daily by somebody. And, uh, and the answer really is it's uh, tune in tomorrow because it'll change. And if you don't catch tomorrow, come back day after and it'll be different because it really, it seems like we're, we're in a point where, you know, we have these basic ecological services that have been kind of growing at a steady pace for the last 20, 30, maybe 40 years in some cases. But uh, it was just a general trend as mitigation markets evolved, uh, water markets evolved, some of these other, other lesser known services. But suddenly over the last, call it 24 months, 18 months, uh, it's like everything went into hyperdrive. Some of that is driven by uh, political change. Some of it is driven by social change. Uh, the migration of people, uh, you, you can't uh, discount how much of an impact that's having on Texas markets because we, we certainly are in the midst of a human migration where we have people from Northern California, New York, you know, host of other west coast and uh, northern locations that are relocating uh, texas tennessee florida and those people 14, are bringing yeah it's 1400 people a day yeah it's a massive number yeah. right so just yeah. the, the viewpoint of those those people are bringing is, is creating an evolution but uh you know the biden's 30 by 30 plan what's that going to mean uh, certainly, again, some of the ones, most of the oxygen's being taken out of the room by carbon now because it's just the one that's most talked about. And frankly, the one that more people at least uh, may understand or have a basic uh, concept of, but that, that's taken up a lot of room. But again, things are just, they're changing so quickly. I'm kind of right out there on the front with uh, with everybody else trying to figure out what's going to come next and how do we get from as you mentioned the carbon's just a minute portion of it so right, right. how do we get the biodiversity credits and when does that become a market when a landowner can uh, um, can get up with an uh, with an idea that he's going to go develop more dollars for his ranching enterprise off of that how long does that take and again there Deals are underway now, so for some people that'll be next week. For some people that may be a few years. Uh, as Greg said, the the recreation market is going in some phenomenal places right now. Again, society driven. Uh, some of that is uh, probably you know heavily influenced by what our country's experience with COVID and the newfound desire for people to move outside and, and get back to the outdoors after being cooped up. But we're in a uh, a market like I've certainly never seen, and I don't think Greg has either, on the demands for people to uh, explore and experience the outdoors. So 
from that standpoint, some of these non-consumptive uh, recreation-based enterprises, I think we're going to see those explode. Greg, you might uh, add a little to that. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're exactly right, um, and I think COVID kind of ties into that. We had been, you know, for many years seeing a bit of an uptick um, in these what we consider to be non-consumptive, uh, which are typically non-hunting, non-fishing, wildlife-related enterprises. We've been seeing an uptick in those markets, but largely the the public lands, whether they be state parks, even city parks, national parks, those kind of areas have been the venues that have been suitable for satisfying the appetite of those, those growing markets. But with COVID, you know, COVID um, really, um, uh, it, it allowed people time <laughs> to, um, to, I think, evaluate what is important in their lives and their lifestyles because they had to sit on their hands for such a long period of time in 2020. And, uh, and one of the things that, that we've seen that's come out of that is <clears throat> we, had a, we had our society that connected or reconnected to our natural world, to our outdoor world, in a very meaningful way. And that's resulted in a spike in hunting and fishing license sales. It's in, uh, resulted in a spike in visitations of different parks. Um, if you look at all the different retail sales, um, backpacking, hiking, boating, UTVs, ATVs, bird watching supplies, across the whole spectrum of those outdoor product retail sales, many of them have been at a record level. So, you know, I think COVID has fast forwarded that trend of people wanting to um, spend time uh, in those settings and, and enter now. Those markets, I think, are now large enough to where it can't all be found on public lands. And so one of the next options is for you know, these private landowners to begin looking at their properties, their lands as a, uh, as, as a venue for being able to accommodate those, you know, those, those growing markets. So uh, even though uh, some landowners have been monetizing those opportunities in the past, I think that we're just uh, almost in a microwave rapid pace within the last year, we have um, landowners in a position to really be able to take a close look at creating a business model around this, this, this market. And hopefully it's a market that has some sustainability to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, Greg, I mean, it's a, the pandemic has been a double-edged sword in, in some sense. I mean, all the positive things, right. This connection back to nature and, and the outdoors um, but we also, you know, have seen a, you know, tremendous increase in um, sales, right? And property sales, you know, from, and so we're seeing, a, I think, an increase of fragmentation, right? So we had that increase of population increase, as Terry mentioned, um, now this increase of pressure on the land of fragmentation, and, you know, what is that gonna, you know, look like in the future, too? So, yeah, a, a lot of, 
uh, positives and negatives, but I mean, there's always solutions around those things. Yeah, and I think one of the neat things, you know, this one of the silver linings of that that fragmentation effect is, you know, as as those properties are fractured, we're creating new landowners, more landowners yep. Yep. Uh, in Texas. So right. we're we're now in a position to share our you know our legacy of this being a very proud private landowner state with more people, which creates greater relevance for, you know, those private lands. And, and, and hopefully at the end of the day, um, you know, creates a, a critical mass within our society that, uh, that makes, you know, better decisions on what goes on on those private lands, because now they're part of the stakeholder group that, um, that is gonna be a consequence of what goes on on those lands. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, gr a great point, Greg. And, you know, when we think about our nation, our nation was kind of founded, you know, it was one of the key principles on, on owning land and that private landowner, you know, um, aspect. And, and so it's great from that perspective. I think, too, it, it, it puts some pressure and I think is a good timing. And, and some of the other pieces is, you know, we need, um, you know, we need to strengthen our extension service. We need to strengthen, you know, research. We need to you know, the, the technical assistance, right, to help these landowners help make better decisions um, to be able to, to steward those lands is, is really a crucial component to that. I think one of the other ones, it's, you know, too, is, that, you know, even beyond, uh, you know, folks of means, you know, they, they still want to be able to try to make money and look at other revenue streams to, to kind of help, help that. And I think, Terry, to kind of flip back to you is, you know, one of those concepts and it's foreign to some is this mitigation, right? Has been around a long time. I'd like to really hear from you and explain kind of this, the mitigation side of the business and, and those uh, revenue streams. Sure. And, and I think when you're, when you're talking about mitigation, you're, you're primarily referring to the mitigation world that uh, revolves around wetlands and streams and endangered species because there's, uh, again, in the water markets and a lot of the other broad ones, in the truest sense, those are still, uh, a lot of those are still mitigation. But when you, you think about the most structured markets within that, i.e. The, the streams and the wetlands, which are, uh, you know, the, the foundation of that is based on the Clean Water Act and the requirements that happen around the country uh, when somebody wants to develop resources uh, that constitute wetlands or streams. And now one, there's a, there, before I dip off into what one of those projects actually looks like, there's, uh, there's a big disconnect in the country of what people can and can't do. And there's a great lack of understanding in the fact that Private landowners that are operating agriculture lands, forestry projects, uh, when the Clean Water Act was first put together, there were exemptions put in place. And farmers, ranchers, timberland owners can uh, consider themselves blessed many times that they have the capacity to go out, build roads, build ponds, and do things that uh, industry simply can't do. And uh, so I think there's a, there's a little bit of a disconnect on, on a lot of landowners um, 
in their vision about what's this all about? I don't, I don't need permits to do that. Why would somebody buy a permit? But uh, again, if you're not working under one of those national exemptions, you're in a different place. But to get back to your question, specifically, you know, in, in order for one of the uh, uh, state highway groups, uh, oil and gas entity, a petrochem plant, a Walmart that wants to develop a property in some way that is going to negatively impact a wetland or a stream there in order for them to move forward and get their permit from the Corps of Engineers to do so, there's got to be an offset. And those really occur in two ways. One, uh, as needed, where a project requires five acres is impacted, five to 10 acres has to be restored. And often, there is a ratio where it's not a one-to-one. -one. If, if somebody's impacting one acre, they've got to offset something larger than that to account for the temporary loss between the time it's impacted and the time it's restored and those factors. But so some cases we're going out and we're we're doing what's called a permitting responsible project where we're offsetting in one project for one impact. The more complex, larger, more robust product is a mitigation bank. And that's an enterprise where someone goes out, um, locates a piece of property that's importantly has been degraded in some way. We're not looking for perfect properties. We're looking for damaged properties, if you will. Although the, the term damaged is uh, it's kind of like beauty in the eye of the beholder. Uh, it could be something that's been fairly degraded. It could be something that just happened to be converted over from a forested wetland to an ag field many years ago. But in that process, we go out, we go through a permitting process, negotiate with the regulators on how we're going to restore, enhance, or fix, if you will, that property. That negotiation results in a ledger of ecological credits that are released as the project materializes and hopefully succeeds. And then when uh, the potential state highway department, Petrochem plant, Walmart come along and they identify an upcoming project, they identify an estimate on the number of uh, acres or linear feet of impact that they're going to encounter as they develop their project rather than getting uh, uh, in their view often in the weeds, if you will, and getting into something that's not their core business. Instead, they can just purchase a credit from one of these approved banks and move on. And back to your concept of how does a private landowner benefit, um, they can do a landowner joint venture where they partner with a group that's got experience and hopefully a successful track record in de developing these types of projects. It um, may be one of those generational landowners that just would, uh, they're beyond wanting to maintain that asset and they're looking for a way out. So they may sell the property to somebody who's interested in doing these, or in some cases they may want to be a just an absolute entrepreneur capitalist and just do the whole thing internally, which is a, 
a bit more of a undertaking, but it's been accomplished many times over the last 20 years by enterprising folks. But in some manner, again, in the species markets, largely follows it in the same type of structure. Uh, it's an opportunity for landowners to either improve their property, improve their cash flow, opportunity for somebody who wants land but is trying to figure out how they can justify paying for it to go buy a new piece of property and use mitigation as a means of paying down the debt, paying off the land over time. So there's a variety of ways that landowners participate in the market, but that's a, a general overview. Yeah, thanks for that kind of detailed and how, you know, how that works. And, you know, I mean, no one has more experience in, than yourself and, and, you know, your, your crew there at uh, Conservation Equity Partners for sure. Um, you know, we've been talking about, you know, all, all this episode around these ecosystem services and value in those and, and trying to think of other ways. You know, Greg, you really, you know, articulated this big suite um, of ecosystem services and really, you know, it boils down to is really about this private land stewardship um, public benefit, right? It's, it's these goods and services that, that flow to those public benefits. Um, and if anybody knows you, Greg, um, well, they know you're a foodie, right? And when we think of wildlife systems, uh, you know, you're, you're providing a recreational opportunity and it's a value, right, of these ecosystem services, but it's also flows into this protein, right, from a, from a food perspective. And really, you know, I really want to hear from your, your point of view, um, kind of this other push of foodies and, and how this all intertwines into the conversation we've had this morning. Right. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to, uh, to discuss that. Uh, you know, for, for many years, there's been these trends within our American society of, of different groups placing more value on, on different types of foods. And, um, and one of the, one of the common areas, uh, that we've seen within that foodie group movement is what we sometimes refer to as, as the locavore movement. Uh, locavore is a term that is generally used to infer that people um, enjoy locally, uh, and I say quote locally, uh, organically uh, produced foods, and they want to be part of the exercise of collecting those foods and processing those foods. And so if you look at um, our hunting markets, for instance, uh, arguably the fastest growing segment of our hunting market today and, and over the last few years have been people getting into hunting for food and which is really, it's, it's counter to what we have seen over the last several decades. But, you know, we talk about how um, with humanity, uh, ten, things tend to uh, come full circle and repeat themselves. And that's, you know, that's the reason why we hunted to begin with was to, uh, to survive, to subsist. And, uh, 
um, obvious, obviously today, um, people don't have to go out and uh, with gun in hand uh, and become a hunter to subsist. But nonetheless, I think that it's very interesting and, and for me, very refreshing to see people getting into to hunting for food reasons. Um, you look at some of the work that Shane Mahoney's doing with his Wild Harvest Initiative. You look at Steve Ranilla's meat eater, um, you know, energy that he's created with the markets that are following him and it's part of his business um, circles. Again, I think those are just testimonies that, um, that, we, uh, that we have an opportunity here with these, these um, you know, these demands, these markets to try to, you know, try to leverage that opportunity for the benefit of, um, you know, uh, cultivating those markets as well as uh, advocating the importance of the stewardship uh, that it takes to, to sustain those markets. And uh, uh, I'm really, I'd be really curious to learn more and, and Mahoney spending some time on this now, but uh, you know, there's reasons to believe that if you look at the sheer biomass of wild game meats, and when I say wild game, I'm not just talking about mammals and birds. I'm talking about the fishes of this country too, freshwater and saltwater fishes. Uh, you combine the biomass of those meats that are available on a sustainable basis, and then you look at the, you know, the different nuts and berries and mushrooms and plants and plant parts uh, that we have available naturally across the landscape. Um, there's perhaps reasons to believe that, that that sustainable surplus, whatever that number is, is a large enough number that when you add that to our traditional you know, ag produced foods that it represents um, uh, national security for us because a nation's food security is central to its, you know, just the, the health and the security of its people. So uh, as we move forward, I'd like to see our, you know, our, our, our leadership in the hunting world take a closer look at that uh, because if, if we can now create that create a new discussion talking about how wild game and hunting speaks to a nation's food security, uh, we now have a new platform to, uh, to serve as an advocate for the importance of, uh, of hunters, huntings, and hunters hunting, and then the game meats and the foods that are part of that. So, Yeah, and I think it becomes a better connection, right, to our land stewards and, and all of those. And I think it's, you know, just fascinating to me. Um, you know, I could, I could talk about this all day, you know, of, of just, you know, all of these connections and you know, as we kind of get closer to wrapping up this conversation, you know, on this episode, you know, what are some of the advice that you have for landowners interested in exploring some of these new strategies we've talked about? Sure. Yeah. Now, great question. Uh, to me, it, it, it reminds me of a quote I heard many years ago that says the mind is like a parachute. It only works when open. <laughs> and so I think, uh, you know, initially just being able to maintain a bit of a, a uh, open frame of mind of, 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 of approaching some of these land, uh, land use opportunities 
maybe uh, from a di different uh, perspective than what historically one may have looked at those opportunities, uh, you know, seeking input from experts and, and uh, other folks that have been there and done that and tried to, and try to, to, to learn from their successes, learn from their failures so you don't, you know, repeat the same failures that they may have had. And, uh, but I think also very importantly, and I've seen this in my business uh, for years, you know, we talk about life being a give and take um, uh, matter. And in this case, it's more of a, you know, a, a, a take and give. If you're going to take people's money, if you're going to open your gates to the, these people um, to uh, as an attempt to try to monetize those resources that are on those properties, you have to realize you're going to have to give something back. And sometimes that's underfoot traffic. Sometimes it's dealing with, uh, you know, just the, uh, the things that go along with having uh, folks on your, your property. And many of them are city folks that um, uh, may, uh, may not be as mindful about uh, things that uh, are pet peeves of yours. So, uh, I think it's very important that landowners, when they do start opening their gates up and monetizing these opportunities, that it is a it is a take and give proposition, and they need to uh, either accept that on the on the front end, or they're going to end up at times pulling their hair out. So, <laughs> a little context there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Greg, for that for those comments there. I think uh, we're having some technical dif difficulty with Terry, uh, unfortunately, because I'd really love to hear kind of some of his thoughts um, on this. But, um, you know, with that, that's, that's, that's technology, right? And uh, we, can't live right. With it. we can't live with it and we can't live without it. But uh, again, Greg, you know, I really appreciate you and Terry joining us today and kind of giving some insight and some, you know, kind of planting those seeds for us to kind of start thinking through as this, you know, uh, ecosystem services start um, kind of coming about and, and growing um, in this realm. So I really appreciate that. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, just really want to you know, again, remind listeners to, to rate and review our podcast. This really, you know, helps us, you know, spread the, the word about our working lands conservation and really want you to join us next week as we continue the discussion and dive deeper into these ecosystem service markets. Um, Till then, uh, have a blessed one. Beyond the Fence Line is brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, dedicated to conserving the Texas heritage of agricultural lands, wildlife habitats, and natural resources. Find out more at txaglandtrust.org.